title of today's message is The Spirit of the Overcomer. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 16 today, going through it and discovering some important truths for our life as we live in this modern world that, we're, that are just as important to us today as they were to Jesus back in the first century. So as I was uh, reading the news this week, I actually came upon some news articles that surprised me. They were given some statistics about something called the self-help industry. The self-help industry are, are self-help books, self-help videos. Basically, they're a bunch of um, people out there that want to offer you advice to um, get you to the next place in life. Maybe it's advice on how to break a bad habit. Maybe it's advice on how to become more successful. And I was surprised to learn that the self-help industry is actually a $15 billion industry in the United States per year. People make $15 billion a year giving people advice on how to improve their life. That was shocking to me as I read that. It kind of seems to be the new normal in America. And it tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that there is a huge need in this country and even throughout the world for people to l learn to overcome the difficulties that they face in life. And as you might expect, the Bible actually has a lot to say about how to do this. And Jesus discusses it a little bit here in John chapter 16. So today we're going to go back into the upper room discourse and see what Jesus has to say about how you and I are facing the hardships of life. Jesus has a lot to say about this during his earthly ministry. In fact, it almost looks like he looked forward 2,000 years into the future and looked at the way that we are living right now in 21st century America. Jesus is trying to impart to his disciples before he goes to the cross some very important lessons to them and things that they are going to have to know prior to him leaving this earth. And we're going to continue the principal idea that Jesus wants to impart to you and me today, and that is um, how to overcome. So let's read the... Um, principal verse that I want to go into, and it's a little bit different than the one that was uh, read on the screen, and I'll, re I'll uh, explain that in just a moment. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Thank you, Lord. The actor in the gospel of John there said, I have defeated the world, it means pretty much the same thing. So before we get into this any further, let's ask God's blessing on our time together in his world this morning. Father God, Lord Jesus, we just ask that you come and speak into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord God, I could drone on for the next half hour and it will it'll just be a waste of time. But if your spirit comes even just for a moment, our lives, our hearts, and our minds can be changed. So I ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning as we study your word. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The title that we as believers in Jesus Christ give ourselves is that of Christian. 
To be a Christian means that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and that you adhere to and obey his teachings. In essence, it means that you are to be just like Jesus. In your personality, you are to be just like Jesus in how you live your life. You are to be just like Jesus in how you even think every thought that comes into your head. And it is a, a slow progression of, of sanctification of how God molds and shapes us so that we can do that, so we can be just like Jesus. And we see here in John chapter 16 that Jesus said, I have overcome the world. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Most of us have problems overcoming little things like overeating or getting enough exercise, having bad thoughts, using bad language. But Jesus took on all that human behavior that we struggle with and even took on all the evil in the entire world and overcame it. He said, I have overcome the entire world. And he's our example. He's the one that we're supposed to follow. He's the one that we're supposed to emulate and show the world the wonder of what his power and his love can do in our lives. Today we're going to talk about overcoming as a Christian, just like Jesus did. But before we get into that, we have to, or how to overcome as a Christian, let's look at what Jesus had to say about the Christian life here in John chapter 16. The first thing he warns us about is that life will be hard. He's, he doesn't promise you a rose garden. He doesn't promise you an easy ride. What he promises is that he will walk with you every step of the way. And as we read the Gospels and we see what Jesus actually teaches us and says to us, it can be sometimes a far cry from some of the preaching that we see on TV or here on the radio today. Some of the most popular preachers in America preach a version of the gospel that tells you that God wants you healthy and wealthy and, and taken care of and, and living this completely pain-free life. And that philosophy might be a great way to sell a book. That might be a great way to get people to send money into, a, into your ministry, but it's not a, a gospel that is found within the Bible. I mean, if Jesus believed that, he never would have went to the cross. But he showed us exactly what you have to do to be pleasing to God, and that was to be obedient and, and a heartfelt relationship with the Father. And in every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus tells us that we're going to have trouble in this world. It's just part of being within a fallen creation. In every gospel, he warns us that trouble will come because of our belief, and that may include persecution. That may include people making fun of you. That may include people even throwing things at you or beating you or lying about you or possibly, in some cases, even being killed for what you believe and killed for being faithful to Jesus. In fact, if you read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there's two chapters in that book that talks to a persecuted church that tells them that there is a time of persecution coming but to stand fast and persevere because he has overcome the world be faithful to the end and you will be saved jesus gives his disciples this illustration of great hardship that may be lost on us in the 21st century but to those living in biblical times the worst thing that there was a very bad thing that could happen to you that he describes here 
in, in John's gospel. And it may not seem like a big deal to us, but to them it meant everything. The thing that he uses to illustrate this great hardship was the example of being thrown out of the synagogue. Now to us, that doesn't seem like it's, it's a real big deal. To them, the synagogue was, was a church. It was their church. In 21st century America, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. So what if they throw me out of the church? I'll just go to the other church. If the Lutherans make me mad, I'll just become a Catholic. If the Catholics then make me mad, I'll become a Pentecostal. If the Pentecostals make me mad, I'll go over to the Baptist church. Sometimes you don't even have to switch denominations. If you're in a big enough city, you could have six different churches in that town of the same denomination you could just bounce over to. So for us, it's not a big deal to to you know, have to be bounced out of a church. But to them, it was very, very different. In fact, today you don't even have to belong to a church or even go to a church, and no one's going to think twice about it. I remember 30 or 40 years ago, you were defined by what church you went to. If people ask, you know, well, that would be one of the main questions they'd ask you when you're starting to get to know them. What church do you go to? Oh, I go to the, the First Presbyterian, or I go to the Methodist Church, or I go here, or I go there. They'd always kind of want to see which faith group you were um, associated with. I would say even 30, 40 years ago, you had no chance of being elected to a public office unless you were a churchgoer. You put it on your resume, yeah. You remember in 2008, when President Obama was running for office, they had a huge deal about where he went to church, how often he went to church, what was preached at his church. It was a huge deal. It was front page news. And that was 10 years ago. In this last election between President Trump and Hillary Clinton, how much was each candidate's church even talked about? It wasn't. There was hardly any discussion about what they believed or whether they were Christians or not. What we've seen here in our lifetime is that America has become a post-Christian nation. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, when I say we become a post-Christian nation, people are like, oh, we're the minority now. Well, honestly, we've always been the minority. We've always been the minority. It's not a bad thing because we know that many of the people who were attending our churches in the past were doing so because they got a benefit from being affiliated with that church, a societal benefit that people would think they're a good person if they went to the church, but they never had really made a commitment to Jesus Christ. But that's not the world that Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 16. In first century Israel, being part of a synagogue was everything. It was everything in life. It was your entire life. Your social status was tied in with the synagogue. Your family's reputation was based on what you did and how much you gave to the synagogue. It affected your business dealings. It affected every single part of your life. And the lives of your children as they advanced toward adulthood, it was all tied up within that synagogue. And if you ever put out of the synagogue, that meant you could not do business in your community. You could not hold a job in your community. You could not marry somebody within your community. Your children would be shunned. You would be shunned. People would literally see you walking down the street and cross to the other side and look away from you. 
and would not even speak to you. You could be starving to death or hurt laying there and they would walk right past you. It was a big deal to be thrown out of the synagogue. That's why this illustration was so powerful in the minds of the disciples. Because it literally meant that they gave up everything to follow Jesus. Maybe some of you have experienced that on a smaller scale. Sometimes we talk about it in our Sunday school here about what some of us have gone through when we accepted Christ. Many of your family members may not want to speak to you anymore. Maybe they don't invite you to the family functions. Maybe coworkers won't invite you to their events because they think you'll spoil their fun. Jesus, the point to all this is that Jesus did not leave us with a false sense that our following him would not cost us anything. While salvation is free for all those who believe, living for him will most likely cost you something, which is why Jesus told us to count the cost, pick up your cross, and follow him. Therefore, Jesus gives us several ways that we can have the right mindset that will enable us to be like him, someone who can overcome the world, overcome the enemy, and even overcome our own sinful desires. And the first thing is to remember that this is not our home. In 1 Peter 1.17, Jesus' best friend said, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. At the beginning of today's message, I talked a little bit about the self-help industry and how it influences the lives in our nation today. There are a lot of reasons why people, even Christians, turn to the things of the world to fix the things of this world. Sometimes Christians turn to, to self-help stuff and, and all these other philosophies because they lack discipleship. They don't know the Word of God for themselves. They don't read it themselves. They don't study it for themselves. Maybe they have a problem believing what they read or they fail to live it out before the world. But here's the problem with going to the things of the world before you go to the things of God as a Christian. If you're a Christian, the Bible says you're literally dead to the things of this world. When you try to take the things of the world and, put, and place it upon yourself, it's like trying to take a hammer and a nail to fix a piece of wood that has already been burned to ash. There's nothing there for the nail to fasten into. You are dead to the thing of this world. You're like a fish out of the water. And you're trying to go to the things of the world to help you breathe air, but you're physically unable to do it, so it doesn't work. That's what happens when people go to self-help things and not to the Word of God. It's like getting bit by a poisonous snake and then going back to the snake for a cure and asking you to bite you again. Using the tools of the world to fix your spiritual problem will never, ever work. The Bible says that you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed. And that's why the Bible describes us as foreigners here in this world. When you become a Christian, you literally die to the things of this world on the spiritual level. We alluded to this scripture in last week's message, but let's look at it in a little bit more depth today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3, it says, Though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And that word strongholds in the Bible, it means a sinful thought, deed, or behavior you refuse to surrender to Christ. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish all those sinful thoughts, all those sinful deeds, all those sinful behaviors. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. <coughs> this last week I was talking with some people about an article that was published in an um, outdoors magazine in which two men were killed by a grizzly bear. And it said that one of them was carrying a, a small caliber pistol in his backpack, but he didn't know how to use it, and he fumbled around with it, and he, he tried to shoot the bear, but the, he actually hit the magazine release, and the magazine fell out of the gun with all the bullets, and the, the bear got him. But anybody knows anything about firearms and grizzly bears will tell you that a small caliber pistol will not do anything to a grizzly bear except make it more angry. A grizzly bear's skull is four inches thick. Four inches thick. You still have to go through four inches of skull, even in the back. And it has an angle in the skull that makes the bullets ricochet off the top of the skull because of the way it's angled. They've actually done a lot of scientific tests. They said even the larger and faster bullets, like a 357 Magnum or a 44 Magnum, will only kill a grizzly if we're fortunate enough to hit it right in the nose or the eyes. And if you think you're going to be able to gun down a grizzly bear, think about a grizzly bear. It can be 800 to 1,000 pounds, and it's charging you at 20 miles an hour, wanting nothing more than to eat you for lunch. And if you sit there and think that you're going to sit there and calmly aim and fire a gun at a grizzly bear that's charging you, well, you must be Wyatt Earp, because I don't think any of us are going to be able to be that calm to land that kind of a shot on a grizzly bear. What I'm talking about, why I'm talking about this, is because it's a great illustration of us using the things of this world to solve the problems of this world. I would take this even a step further. Anybody remember making spitballs in school? If yeah, maybe, maybe you were better than I was, but I used to make them all the time. It's spitballs when you chew up a piece of paper, put it in a straw, and you, and you shoot it at the girls. And yeah, there was, like, there was always somebody blowing spitballs. But this would be like using a spitball to try to take out that grizzly bear, is using the things of this world to solve spiritual issues. Why would you want to use a spitball when God gives you a bazooka. When God has placed you inside an Abram's battle tank to take on this grizzly bear, but we want to use the spitball of this world to take it on. That's why the Bible is very, so, very specific here. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of this world, but mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now, don't you want those kind of weapons to deal with the situations in your life? Don't you want to see God's mighty power working through you? And do you want to be an overcomer instead of a victim? Yeah. 
Well, if you do, if you're taking notes and write down this verse I'm about to read and some of the principles behind it. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 speaks of the time of the Antichrist, the kind time I believe we're living in right now, where the Antichrist is beginning to, to rise and possibly come into power. It talks about believers during that time in verse 11 where it says, They, the believers, triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Man, that is a manifesto for the overcomers. It's a three-step way of facing life and overcoming difficulty. Let's break it down. First, we look at the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is a symbolic way of connecting the Old Testament sacrifices with the New Testament reality that Jesus was our final sacrifice for sin. In the Old Testament, they'd have to go at least one time a year to offer a lamb to the priest who would then sacrifice it as an atonement or a payment for the sin of the individual and even the sin of the nation. But the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is our final sacrifice. It says that he went into the holy place once and offered himself once and for all for the sins of humanity. As the hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Jesus paid the price now and forever, and he took all the punishment that we deserve for our sins. That's why Jesus was able to say that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We need to have a revival of belief in the power of Jesus' sacrifice as it is portrayed in the principle of the blood of the Lamb. It covers us, it enters us, it renews us, it makes us holy and righteous in God's eyes. How do you apply that to being an overcomer today? Well, the name the Bible gives our spiritual adversary is Satan. That name means deceiver. Satan will tell you you're not good enough, worthy enough, or well-behaved enough to be worthy of God's love. And in that, he is actually partially correct. As with most lies, there's an element of truth within it that makes it believable. Our sin indeed separates us from God. But when we have faith in Jesus Christ, all that is wiped away. If you are placing your faith in Jesus this morning, then God sees you perfect sinless, and worthy of his love. There is no asterisk there. There is no equivocation. There is no but except for this. It is simply that God sees you perfect, sinless, and worthy of his love. Believing that in your innermost being is a first step toward being an overcomer. That's how the blood of Jesus cleanses you and washes you and prepares you to live life on this earth. The second thing that we look at is the word of their testimony. What does the Bible mean by saying we defeat the enemy by the word of our testimony? To answer that, we have to go back to the beginning. Very quickly, God creates Adam and Eve, places them in the garden with only one command. Do not eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As we all know, they failed 
to believe God's word and the rest is biblical history. If we were to summarize everything in the Bible and all the history down to its most fundamental level, it all revolves around a crisis of belief that God's word is true. That's what all, everything in the Bible revolves around. Is what God says true? The word of our testimony only has power if we believe what we are saying about God and salvation through Jesus Christ is true. We prove it's true by how we live our lives before the world. There's power in the blood of Jesus only if we apply it to every area of our life. And that is how the testimony makes itself powerful. That's the second step in being an overcomer. Let's look at the third. The third says that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. When we talk about verses like this that speak of death, we automatically just assume that we're talking only about the cessation of life on this earth. And we talk about death, it's, it's, it's a natural reaction within us to create a, a sense of fear within us because we all want to survive. It's part of God's creating his image within us. The clear reading of this verse definitely talks about being willing to give your life for the gospel and what you believe. However, it is also speaking about being willing to live dead to this world. You think, what does it mean to live dead? It means that because you have trusted in the blood of the Lamb, and because you are concerned about how the testimony of your life reflects on the kingdom of God, it means that the that you make a choice empowered by the Holy Spirit to live differently from the people around yourself. It means you are dead to yourself to let Christ live within you. The Apostle Paul, who defined the teaching of Jesus further and defined it in how we actually live it within the context of life, said this, You are not your own. If you come to Jesus Christ, you are not your own. This is not your life anymore. You were bought with a price. You are a slave of Christ. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Simply put, it means that when you came to Jesus Christ, you were born again and dead to your previous way of living. Therefore, the life you live now is to be lived according to His will, and not yours. So the three steps to overcoming, the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and we do not love our lives so much that we shrink from death. In conclusion, in John 10.33, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. A while ago, I participated in the failed resuscitation of a person who was well-known in the community as a substance abuser, drug abuser. This person's answer to all the hardships of lives, life were to place themselves into a drug or alcohol-induced haze. We saw this person in the ER a lot, saw them on the street. Um, just, they were just a mess. 
And these choices that had been going on for many years had finally caught up to them and cost that person their life. I was thinking about that as I was writing this sermon. I was thinking that there are many people who are hearing this message who are a lot like this person, using the things of this world to soothe the pains of life. Maybe today you're caught up in a bad habit or a destructive lifestyle, and you have no idea how to get out. Well, let me tell you how to get out. Jesus is your answer. He has overcome, and he wants to help you overcome. That's why overcomers have a rare commodity in the world today, and that is an overriding peace no matter what happens to them. Nothing can phase them because they have God's vision on not only what is happening to them right there in that moment, but what it really means in eternity. And honestly, most of the things that bother us in this life have no eternal impact whatsoever. That's why Jesus tells us he has overcome the world. You don't have to be overcome by yourself because he already has. He wants to make you the overcomer. He wants to impart that kind of overcoming attitude into each one of us today. Father God, I just ask that you search and know every single person here, even myself, even my wife, every single person, that you would point out in us the things in our, li- the things in our lives where we are trying to use the things of this world to satisfy us instead of your presence, instead of your ways, instead of your word living within us. And Father God, I just ask that you help us to overcome with your power so that our testimony will shine in this world. That there could be no doubt that the God we serve lives within us. And that in so, we will not love our life so much that we shrink from death. But we'll see it for what it is. Simply opening a door into a new room of existence. An existence filled with your joy, your presence, and your happiness, Lord. Father God, I pray, Lord, that you help us all to live dead. So that we When people look at us, they can say that indeed they have also overcome the world, just like the Lord they claim to serve. Father God, I thank you, Lord, and I bless your people now. Go with them, use them, and let them shine the love of Jesus into this community. And I ask this in your name.